This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is brought to you by the First There Foundation. We met First There through our friend, Eric Holman. He's an Air Force combat controller, a hell of a guy. The mission of First There is to ensure all combat controllers have a teammate to reach out to when life becomes difficult. They know firsthand what it feels like to be forgotten, lost, or have lost a loved one. They'll provide mental, financial, career, and or substance abuse assistance for that combat controller. Check them out at firstthere.org. That's the number one for first, firstthere.org, and go support their worthy cause. Our guest today is a product of that partnership with First There. His name is Tim Brown, and he was one of the original Air Force combat controllers. Tim has traveled the globe chasing bad guys on behalf of Uncle Sam, including jumping into Panama in 1989. He has some incredible stories, so settle in for my conversation with Tim Brown. Tim, uh, a good day, and man, I'm just, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Well, thanks, Brian. I'm uh, really glad that you invited me on here. It's a great opportunity to talk about a little bit of history that a lot of folks just aren't aware of. I got a text message from our mutual friend and really huge friend of the show, Eric Holman. Shout out to Eric and what he's doing through the First There Foundation. Guys, if you have not checked them out yet, and I know most of you have just by listening to our conversations, please do so. Go find their website. They're doing incredible work to remember uh, fallen warriors and really support families, right, of of specifically Air Force uh, combat controllers. And just being grateful for Eric. <laughs> He sent me this text. He said, and Tim, I'm probably going to embarrass you a little bit. He said, Brian, meet Tim Brown, one of the original slayers in CCT. He and the boys jumped into <laughs> Panama 33 years ago. And so we're going to talk a lot about that. And we're going to get a bit of a history lesson, which I think is cool, to this special yeah. forces unit inside the Air Force. And Tim's got a little gray in the beard, right? Maybe Just a little, little longer. Bit, yeah. But yeah, it used to be blonde. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, man. So when I got a text like that, I'm like, shit hot. When can we, like, let's get this set up as soon as possible. <laughs> Man, just thrilled to do it today. Well, we certainly appreciate, uh, you know, Eric and the other guys reaching out to us because, uh, you know, it, as you get a little older, you get a little bit farther separated and, you know, the global war on terror is taking a whole lot of the attention, which is fine. They deserve yeah. every bit of yeah. it. Yeah. And not to take anything away, but yeah, yeah. There, there was a lot of history that, that brought them up just like, you know, special forces. Right. Yeah, and everybody else. And well, we've, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys about this before because uh, we've had the the very fortunate um, blessing of, of talking to a lot of guys in that global war on terror, right, time frame. And really that pivotal moment of that Tuesday morning, right, September the 11th, right, there, it, it's a pivotal moment in time where we kind of, right, to the right of that is all of this global war on terror. But, you know, to the left of that is, are these incredible moments that lead towards our elite fighting force being what it is today. And our timeline is going to go through a few different things today. We're, we're going to talk about sort of Operation Eagle Claw, right? A, a, a tough failure in our history. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about sort of Grenada, right? Well, that was like in the early 80s. And then another big moment in Panama in 1989. And what, what happens is you start building up these forces and the air force, the army and the Navy start building up these elite forces. So you're going to, you're going to give us a bit of a history lesson this morning, which I'm excited about. And it's going to lead us towards the 24th special tactical squadron, where we hear about things like pararescue men. And we've talked to folks like Josh Apple on this show from operation red wings, episode one twenty four, or combat controllers like Eric, right? Like Mark Forrester, who was killed in combat. We had his brother Thad on like Dan Skidmore, like Connor Matthews, those guys we've talked to and how, the Air Force guys have become part of this elite force because you hear about Delta Force and DevGrew, right? That, those are the SEAL Team 6 guys or who I like to talk to as the Bin Laden house party <laughs> house party guys. Uh, but you were part of that sort of early wave of this special forces in the Air Force. I think like the 19th guy into it. So do you mind taking us back to 24 April 1980? Tough time, right? It was a tough, tough moment. Yeah, it, it, it really was. Yeah, it, it really was, uh, uh, you know, number one back in November when the, uh, the Iranian students took our uh, embassy hostage, uh, it, it just shocked everybody. Uh, I, I guess there were some folks that said, well, we're not surprised, but we are shocked uh, that it actually happened. But uh, <clears throat> not to go back into the politics of the history, but, but that spurred uh, our leadership in, in 
to do something. And, and when I say leadership, I'm talking about our military leadership. Mm-hmm. And they came up with numerous, uh, you know, potential mission combinations, you know, and then finally settled on this. Uh, Charlie Beckwith was was really the core uh, of that of that uh, proposition, if you will. Him and his fledgling Delta group, <clears throat> they had uh, two squadrons at the time, A and B squadron. Uh, and so he was really pushing to, to utilize all of those folks. And of course, you know, one thing grew to another and, and uh, you know, it was post-Vietnam. So everybody had to have a piece of the pie. Mm. And it was really unfortunate. I, although I wasn't involved directly in, in the, uh, uh, the lead up to Eagle Claw, you know, all of us did something in support of it, whether we knew it or not. Yeah. Uh, there were so many classified little uh, exercises going around uh, and, and they did things separately back then they never really put it all together into a into a giant uh ftx uh, but uh you know you do it a little airfield seizure with a couple of c-130s and, and a ranger company uh, you 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 know the delta guys would go do a, a a building clearing evolution you know and they had models uh, mm-hmm. erected and, and things along that line and then, uh, of course, all the background uh, covert operations there, uh, people on the ground. Uh, the, uh, back then, we didn't have satellite communications in every back- backpack like we have today. Uh, we didn't have GPSs on every watch like we have today. Uh, it was, we were in a time of transition, you know, uh, and, and we were still using older Vietnam-era uh, mm. equipment uh, and trying to, trying to break through the tactics but unfortunately, the equipment was still limiting us. But anyways, yeah. uh, eventually the guys went out there. Uh, one of the interesting things from the combat control side was that up in the Pentagon, uh, when they're planning all this, they go, you know, we don't know how to identify this airfield out on the ground. All right? And uh, one of the airports generals said, hey, give me one of those CCT guys. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they knew that John Carney had been out there. He had, he had been a, a football coach at the academy. So he had a pretty good uh, uh, network and a lot of people knew him uh, so he was a, a a good 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 cheerleader for us and a great uh, leader of guys super good uh, uh, condition always pushing people but so they brought him in and what they did is they came up with this uh, uh, plan to fly him in on a covert CIA aircraft uh, at night find the, find the uh, intended landing zones, and for him to go out there, take soil samples, and to implant remote control infrared lights okay. to, to identify the landing strip. So only the planes in the sky could see him? Correct. Yep. Correct. And, of course, all of this stuff is uh, nation te- technology. It's, it's uh, you know, really, is it going to work stuff? Uh, they, they didn't have any background. Uh, he did it. Uh, <laughs> as he said, uh, uh, he flew with one of the very, very, very famous uh, uh, Air America uh, CIA pilots. Uh, those that know that will know. But uh, he went in there with a little mini bike that they threw out of the side of the, uh, uh, the Twin Otter aircraft that they flew in on. And, you know, here's this 200-pound John Carney with his rucksack on this little tiny uh, thing going up and down the dirt, uh, this uh, dirt strip in the desert but uh he said it was a lot of fun uh scared the heck out of them all uh threw the the little mini bike back in the uh, twin outer and they took off two weeks later there they are they're flying back into that uh that airstrip and uh carney's up in the front seat of the uh the lead mc-130 hoping that this system will turn on uh you know and it's batteries and switches and making sure the the switches are all in the right position remote control and Lo and behold, the lights turn on. And it was like, oh, great. We found, we found where yeah. we're supposed to go. Yeah. yeah. And uh, again, not to, not to rehash all the details on the ground, because again, I wasn't there, but, uh, you know, we had the, uh, the C-130s landed. They had a dust storm uh, en-, en route with the helicopters. Had, uh, one or two of them had to turn back by the time they got there. But they had pretty much uh, made the call uh, to abort the mission at that point. Uh, they just didn't have enough helicopters and, and forces on the ground. Uh, while they were refueling the helicopters, one of them had a brownout hit the uh, hit an MC-130 and and the disaster that uh, that followed. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, out of all of the uh, uh, the disaster, you know, 
the the phoenix rose yeah and so many wonderful things came out of that uh you know number one you know delta uh delta was recognized as a powerful force uh the air force uh, uh not only was were the uh mc-130s validated because they were still kind of you know they flew a little bit in, in uh, vietnam but not mm-hmm. much um and they still had different configurations in them but but they were kind of validated at that time uh the fact that we needed a heavy lift helicopter with uh, uh night capability was validated and the air force got that mission uh hence the mh-53 program uh, our combat controllers were validated as necessary airmen to put that ground and air together uh and make all this work both as a preparation you know preparation of the battlefield uh, advanced force operation as well as uh, boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of these forces were, were validated as requirements and, and it started to move forward. You know, in less than two years, they stood up the Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, our first unit uh, back then it was called DET-1 uh, MACOS, Military Airlift Combat Operations Staff. Uh, and it, everybody had names to divert it from what it really was. Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, so, you know, our... our our public chain of command was totally different from our real chain of command. Uh, but, and back then it was, let's go out and try something new. Okay. And you validated all the way up to the first E seven in the uh, chain of command and you went out and did it. You know? uh, and uh, so, and, and of course, uh, uh, Dick Marcinko was standing up his yep. uh, SEAL team six at the time. Yep. Uh, so everybody was in a state of growth, uh, uh, it was a wonderful time to be an operator because the rules were very, very, very loose to say the least. You guys are kind of designing it, right? I mean, you think about it, you're coming oh, yeah. off this Vietnam era special warfighter, guys like mm-hmm. Kirby Harrell, who we've had on this show, right? Oh, yeah. Incredible human. I mean, that guy, you want to talk about a badass and the stuff those guys were asked to do in those kind of Absolutely. scenarios. I mean, it's crazy at this point, right? So it's sort of 1980 headed to 1983. The Grenada thing is kind of next on our timeline, but where are you in your journey, right? How old are you at this time? Where'd you come from? How did you get into this? Well, you know, <laughs> real, real quick snapshot of, uh, of Tim. Uh, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we were in the lower East side. Uh, you know, they, during the 67 riots, it was, you know, burning and inhabit yeah. within a couple blocks of my house. Uh, but I lived down, uh, you know, a lot of people go, oh, wow, what a beautiful place. I mean, we had Belgians and Germans and we had, uh, you know, uh, Southern blacks and Mexicans. Everybody lived there because they all worked in the, uh, in the, in the car industry, mm-hmm. you know, they all took the bus to work and they all, you know, I mean, as kids, we ate every kind of food you could think of <laughs> and it was cool. You know, uh, we didn't look at anything as uh, ethnically diverse. We, that's just Ralph and that's just Migo and mm-hmm. you know, things along that line. So it, it was cool to grow up there uh, in that time. Uh, and then after, of course, after uh, uh, the 67 riots, you know, society changed a little bit. I went on, graduated high school, thought I was going to go to college. Uh, that didn't work out so well. And uh, I ended up going, well, I'm going to join the Air Force. I'm going to go be an air traffic controller. I'm going to go be smart. Yeah, I had never heard of Air Force Special Operations. I had never heard of combat control or pararescue or uh, tactical air control, anything along that line. And uh, so I went in to do my four years of air traffic control, come out and work for the FAA. And uh, 28 years later, I finally made it out. Uh, <laughs> I discovered the combat control thing uh, while I was in. And, and uh, you know, it intrigued me. I uh, went out there and... and uh, you know, went through the, back then we didn't have the selection system that we have today. Hmm. Of course, none of the services had that at the time. You know, you, you only had a couple of units that had a selection process, but as far as getting into special forces, getting into Rangers, uh, you know, you had to go through their schools and that in itself was a selection process. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, long, long story short, I ended up at McCord Air Force Base, spent a few years there, got a lot of uh, training time with the 2nd Ranger Battalion. I uh, got to know those guys really, really well. Uh, and as they were standing up, Det 1 Makos back at uh, uh, Hope Air Force Base, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I was eventually invited to come join them. And uh, what they did at the time is they'd invite you out on, a, out on an exercise. And you'd spend about two weeks going through, uh, you know, 
a little mini selection, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to, to see how you operated. And then, they, you know, if, if you did okay, that they, they, all of a sudden you had orders to go to Pope Air Force Base. Yeah. And your commander would be going, what are you doing? <laughs> I can't afford to lose you. We only had, I don't know, maybe 350, 375, somewhere in there, combat controllers in the world at that time. Wow. At that time. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. many walk in, walk in the earth today? Because the numbers are a lot smaller than Green Berets, Navy. Oh Seals, yeah, right? we're, we're still bigger. a sm- yeah, still a small force, but we're I, I want to say in the seven hundred plus range right now. Uh, I, I think the the authorizations were up to eight hundred something for a while, but I think we've drawn back a little bit, uh, you know, since, since the end of the Guat. Uh, and, and again, I'm I'm a little separated from the active duty guys right now, but uh, still interested in it absolutely. Uh, but yeah, we were, we were small, we, we were tiny, you know, at, at the time. Uh, and, and again, we were spread all over the place. We had 12 man teams in places like, uh, uh, Dias Air Force Base and, uh, Philippines. We had two teams in the Philippines, a, uh, a special operations team and a conventional team. Uh, we had, uh, a team in Germany. Uh, then we had two teams in Germany, a special operations mm-hmm. team and a conventional team. So it was, it was all over the place. Uh, and uh, the Det One Makos, the JSOC forces, if you will, finally started to put all of this stuff together. You know, and, and we became very good at interoperational uh, uh, work. You know, airfield seizures was kind of the Rangers' big thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And then they were a security force for uh, whatever target uh, uh, mission was out there. Uh, we were always on the airfield. We did a lot of reconnaissance stuff with the airfields and we would also control traffic out uh, helicopter landing zones. Uh, we didn't do a whole lot of close air support back then mm-hmm. because they didn't bring in close air support at the time. Right. Uh, we had the, the little birds, the gunships uh, and the AC 130s. Of course, we worked with all of those as well. Those, uh, that close air support are a lot of the stories that Eric's told us about, right? That, that Mark lived through, right? Those guys, Really, when they're conducting efforts, Iraq, Afghanistan, there's, there's, it seems like there was a lot of that happening then. Uh, yeah, we, th- th- there is that really right pivotal moment, 1989, right? We've got a real hostage rescue mission. You, when we were talking before, though, you said, you know, you, you, we talked sort of about the lead up to that. But one of the things you told me is that, you know, so I got in, it got going, spent a lot of years chasing bad guys around the globe. Well, what, what is happening through the 80s? before we get to that big move in Panama in 89? Well, as a lot of people remember, uh, you know, there was a lot of small proxy wars, if you will, mm. uh, where, you know, the, the Cubans and the Russians would support a small country that, you know, and, and we would support another small country. And of course, drugs were rampant back then and drugs fueled governments, which fueled terrorists in, the, in their own right. Uh, the batter Meinhof gang in Germany, the, uh, uh, Oh, geez, we had, uh, in a, off the top of my head, I forget the name of the group, but uh, we had the uh, uh, the Achille Loro uh, uh, cruise liner hostage uh, situation in the Mediterranean. Uh, we had uh, uh, Beirut, hostages in Beirut numerous mm-hmm. times. Uh, we had, uh, oh, geez, it, it just go on and on and on. Uh, it, there was never a dull moment, it seems like, uh, in I used to have a, a cool classified uh, uh, briefing, but I don't bring those things home. Uh, but it had all the timelines. <laughs> you don't keep them locked up in your garage in your Corvette? <laughs> yeah, I got them on my thumb drive. <laughs> no, but uh, given the news of the week, some of you will be chuckling at that back, back and forth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it, it was like every month there was something. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, and every it's just holiday, busy, right? Just busy. Yeah, and every holiday season, there was another Operation Deny mm-hmm. Christmas. Uh, we had folks down in Suriname, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it, it wasn't the Jim Jones Massacre folks, but there were other yeah. guys down there, uh, you know, in Guyana and Suriname and places like that. So everywhere you went in the world, there, there was some kind of a uh, uh, bad guy threat, you know, and uh, the Delta and the SEALs and us and, and the whole JSOC intelligence community, uh, as well as those guys, uh, other guys in Virginia, that mm-hmm. were all focused on, on, on this stuff. So it was an interesting time. Like I say, it was a good time when it came to the training because, you know, we were still pretty open to any any cool ideas. That's where tandem bundles came in. 
for example. Everybody does it now. Back then, it was it was cutting edge. Explain that to me. Yeah. Uh, this is this is where people are familiar with uh, tandem parachuting, where, you, where sure. a jump master takes and puts a person on in front, takes sure. them for that first fun skydive and whatnot. Well, that was a great idea because, of course, uh, from the military, we wanted to bring in people that weren't. Uh, parachute qualified and didn't need to be mm. uh, free fall qualified. But so, you still need them on the ground. That's the best way to get them in. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and we're talking, you know, onesies and twosies, very specialized stuff. Uh, we're not talking about large forces, you know, but that led to, you know, we've got a lot of heavy gear and this is kind of dangerous taking this, this stuff, trying to put it on, on people. So let's see if we can consolidate it. And, you know, we started out with these uh, cruise boxes, you know, rectangular metal boxes, uh, rigged up and you know guys are flying like this and it was pretty dangerous but we did it you know uh, and uh, hurt a lot of people uh, and one thing led to another and, and through the development time uh, somebody saw these uh, concrete round tube forms that you see in construction sites uh, if you see concrete columns all right they're poured into a basically a cardboard tube for like sure sure okay well take these tubes cut them down to size, fill them up with stuff, okay, and rig them, and they fly a whole lot better than a rectangular metal box. And uh, nowadays, you know, that's it's become pretty common. All the special operations units uh, have got a, a tandem capability uh, to, to bring in, you know, oversized, uh, heavy gear, things along that line, uh, and not have to worry about a separate airdrop or air land or a helicopter insertion, things like that. But anyways, so, you know, it was fun. It was, it was cutting edge. It was, you know, dangerous in, in its own right, but, uh, you know, that's what we did. Uh, you know, it, it is what it is, you know, yeah. paratroopers you, always looking for some, some kind of trouble to get into. You're always looking for some activity, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> business is good, right? Like, but anyway, so, you know, what, what, we're, bad guys yeah, what we're doing all that stuff, we're still chasing bad guys around the world, trying right. to identify them. We're not having big gunfights. You know, that wasn't the yeah. idea. The idea yeah. was to identify, uh, in, in many cases, there were very quiet uh, snatches, you know, and, and brought to uh, brought to justice in, in our courts and uh, prisons and, and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're facing 1988, uh, Noriega's starting to get pretty ugly down in Panama. It's still mm -hmm. big drug wars. Uh, he's, he's cozying up with uh, with some folks that, you know, we weren't really happy about that. Uh, so we started, you know, of course, the, the dip diplomacy starts, you know, trying to tell them, hey, you know, Manuel, you know, we'd be giving you a lot of money and help and support. Uh, you know, we want you to uh, come back and be good to us. And well, he didn't. Uh, so we started we started bringing forces down into uh, into Panama uh, on a rotational basis. You know, it's, it, you, you don't you don't hide a hangar full of guys. With right. a couple of MC 130s, AC 130s, helicopters, little birds. Uh, you know, you're out on the shooting ranges every day, things like that. You know, 400 of your best male friends in a hangar is hard to hide. Uh, so it's kind of a show of force in its own way. Mm -hmm. We rotated in and out of there basically all of 1989. Uh, and then uh, in the fall, uh, Noriega became uh, uh, a little bit. Uh, too intransigent and the decision was made that we are going to go uh, kick some butt as well as the uh, the Kurt Muse um, uh, when, when they held him in the prison mm -hmm. prison uh, he wouldn't release him uh, it was uh, you know a legal issue as well as a, a government issue and it was a perfect opportunity to uh, to, uh, to let our army brothers go in there and uh, kick kick butt and, and bring him home and they did just that and they did just that. And uh, it was quite the operation. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the lessons learned back way back in Grenada was the communications, interoperability. Our special ops guys, we could all talk to each other. But we couldn't talk to the Navy. We couldn't talk to the Navy aircraft coming in. Uh, we couldn't talk to the uh, conventional side of the world because we didn't have the same frequency sets. Mm. Right? And so we had a huge communication problem and people think that it's, it's, it's easy to just, you know, pick up a radio, talk with somebody. Well, it is, if you're on the same frequency, you know? <clears throat> so, uh, and, and again, back then we we're talking, you know, Vietnam era technology for the most part, uh, we, we, 
We were growing in the satellite communications, but we had more of it than anybody else in the world. You know, so again, we talked to ourselves really well, uh, and we had a real problem talking with with folks outside of our uh, circle of influence. So, moving on to uh, uh, Panama, much, much, much better. I mean, the the whole U.S. military could talk to each other at this point. You know, and uh, you know. Uh, the folks, I, I give a lot of credit to, to the planners in a lot of ways, putting air, even space back then, mm. air, space, ground, maritime, uh, close air support, artillery, uh, uh, very surgical strike, tactical, uh, ground forces all had inter, inter-team radios. All of that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a lot of noise. Huh? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's when we talk about moving heaven and earth. Right, yeah. like all of those components, and and it it feels to me like you guys had to to learn, right? Put all of those practices in place during that time frame. So when you get to June twenty eighth, two thousand and five, and Marcus Luttrell is the last remaining SEAL uh, after three are killed in combat during Operation Red Wings, and Spanky Peterson talks to us about the gunship in the air and the Rangers in the village and the SEALs on the mountain and their pavehawk going in to do their thing, right? That's a lot of activity, man. Exactly. And exactly. all of that had to be kind of figured out, I guess, it, during it your time does, frame. It does. And this is where, you know, spotting the the, uh, the combat control uh, expertise, our guys didn't have a, a you know, of course, we all carried a little checklist book with us, but you memorized that stuff because you didn't have time to, to uh, reference it. You knew AC-130 tactical frequency here, command and control frequency over here, uh, airfield frequency over here, inter-team frequency one, inter-team frequency two, inter-team frequency three. You know, uh, you, you had all of that in there and you knew how to switch your radios. Uh, most, most everybody carried two to three radios operating at any given time. Okay, nowadays you can do a lot of that with one radio just switching, mm-hmm. uh, switching channels. But back then, we had to uh, carry a, uh, a URC-100 or a 101 along with a uh, KY-57 secure device, along with a uh, PRC-78 FM radio and a, uh, a UHF radio. So you'd have three of these things going with handsets and headsets and combinations thereof. Dude, you're fully rucked up. What I mean, what do you add at capacity weight-wise with all that stuff? You know, you're depending on what you're doing. If you're just, you know, going in on a hit and in out, you're anywhere from 80 to 120 pounds. Wow. You know? uh, and, and of course, we're not carrying heavy weapons. You know, we're, yeah. We're, we're carrying we're carrying a combat loadout. Don't get, don't get right. me wrong. Yeah. You know, we're carrying a, you know, an M4 with 120 rounds, a sidearm, uh, maybe some grenades and uh, 40 millimeter. But you know, we're not we're not carrying a range load or anything sure. like that. What was the likelihood uh, during missions like that? Maybe even specifically on that day, 20 December, what was the likelihood of a firefight versus what those guys were doing in close air support combat scenarios like they might have been in Afghanistan, Iraq? Is comparable at all? Are they totally different? Well, if you remember, uh, for example, the airfield of Batia, where Noriega's private jet was, it was a small airfield in downtown uh, Panama City. Quite quite a firefight there with the seals. Mm-hmm. Okay, we had a couple of combat controllers involved in that. You know, there was a whole lot of two way shooting range going on that night. All right, uh, they they got very involved. Uh, we had some folks up in uh, uh, outside of the airfield. Uh, for the most part, on the airfield uh, at at uh, Taco and Chirios, the the main international airfield, uh, the Rangers took care of most everything. Uh, a couple little skirmishes here here and there on the initial jump in. Uh, whereas the folks uh, uh, down at Noriega's compound, uh, everybody everybody was in a in a shooting shooting mm-hmm. uh, game down there. So it depends on where you're at, uh, you know, in, in the circumstances. Uh, you know, the uh, back then, you know, a, a gunfight was rare. It wasn't an everyday thing. Okay, uh, nobody shied away from, them, but it's just something that we just. You know, it wasn't our forte at the time. Uh, Rangers were still Rangers. The Army's still the Army. The Navy's still the Navy. That's that's their game. We were very good at what we did. If we did have to pull the trigger, we didn't miss. Uh, we're very proud of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like like uh, Eric said, you know, don't get killed and don't fuck up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's right. And, and it was very important for us uh, not to fuck up. Sure. Example. 
you know, uh, but, you know, again, uh, uh, Grenada, Panama, lessons learned, and, and uh, our command was really, really good about doing a super good lesson learned uh, review, making changes, getting new equipment, making sure everybody was up on it. Uh, and again, I'm very proud of the fact that, that our combat controllers uh, were so good at this, mm. you know, so good at this. Uh, and, and, and again, they, they didn't miss a beat. Uh, and if you don't mind, let me go back just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. After, after, after Grenada, one of the big things that we had, a, uh, an after action report on was tactical medical care. We didn't have any, and we had none on the air force side. All right. Uh, and so John Carney, our, our godfather, uh, had this great idea of, of said, hey, you know, there's these pararescue guys out there and, and the Air Force is going to put them all into the reserves because uh, they just don't, you know, they just don't see a, a, another Vietnam need for them mm -hmm. on the active duty side. Mm -hmm. said, let's, let's bring a handful on. So they did. And uh, my good friend, John Pagini, uh, uh, was the first one. He was a very uh, Silver Star decorated Vietnam uh, PJ, uh, senior NCO. Uh, he, he started to bring a few guys on, lots of conflict, two type A male-dominated forces yeah. uh, trying to integrate back then. It was ugly at times, uh, but we, we, we worked through it, and Grenada was a, a great validator of that special tactics thing. Our, our uh, pararescue men at, at the time... Uh, we had developed uh, a, an overland capability and an airdrop, uh, the uh, rescue all-terrain uh, vehicle, uh, and uh, dropped a couple of those in. So we had that capability on the ground. They used it a lot uh, on the airfields, transporting uh, uh, gunshot victims, things along that line. Uh, so it validated the use of the, of the pararescue men. Uh, they were out there flying uh, recovery missions. And... That's really where special tactics, as we know it today, uh, coalesced. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm real proud to be a you know a part of that that time frame because everybody you know nowadays is you know uh, combat controls, pararescue, uh, tactical air control party. Uh, you know our new special reconnaissance uh, career field used to be the uh, uh, special operations weather teams. Uh, they've really transitioned into into a unique force. But all those guys are together. You know, it's kind of like an A-team. You know, yeah. uh, you got the weapons sergeant, the intel sergeant, you know, things along that line. Uh, you got all these guys that all work together to do a really good job. And, and that's what they're doing today in special tactics. It, it's what for me has just been obviously, and I'm so, just so grateful, right, for the education on the timeline of all this, right? And because and it's just, I like for us to go back in and, and we've told, again, so many stories sort of to the right of 9-11. I, I love to go back to the left and, and sort of revisit some of that and mm -hmm. been very fortunate to talk to again, like guys like Kirby or even like Melvin Morris medal of honor recipient in Vietnam. And you said something earlier about the technology. I mean, Melvin goes back into the battlefield to recover a fallen brother one, because he needs to get his brother off the battlefield and two, because he was carrying paper maps <laughs> that had their locations yeah. all over it, that he had to go get that paper map. So the enemy couldn't physically obtain that. And you think about just yeah. the way that all that paves the way for then when we get to those moments where like a guy like Josh Apple who's graduating from med school, right? Basically becoming a doctor is in the air force reserves. And they're like, we're pulling you up to, to, to go out. And he ends up playing a critical role in, in operation red wings. He's the yeah. guy who has a red dot on Marcus's chest. Cause he doesn't know if he's good or a bad guy in that moment. Yeah. They got to pull him in. And, and, you know, we talked to Spanky Peterson who flew that payfock episode two of the show. And, and, and sort of the, 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 the crew that they put together, the FE on that payfock was in Vietnam. It's 2005, right? Vietnam was a long time ago. Yeah. I love it. Right. And I love to hear you and, and what I want our listeners to lean on, lean in on is all the elements it takes to make this stuff happen and all yeah. the people it takes and the way in which collaboration across the branches has to happen for success. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it was, you know, uh, frustrating, gratifying, rewarding, uh, difficult, you know, every, every, uh, descriptive term you can think of, you know, was all part of that. You know, it, the big word salad, uh, you know, it's like making sausage. Don't watch how it's made. Just enjoy it when it's done. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and that's where we were living. But, you know, we were living it in, with uh, real world operations, you know, and, and skipping forward again, just a little bit. You know, we had the uh, the Haiti uh, mission that there was really not a mission. You know, they uh, diplomatically uh, uh, settled that, even though we did send forces in and, and our combat control uh, folks ran the airfield again, uh, you know, before anybody was there. You know, one helicopter full of guys came in and, and set up that airfield and ran it for a week, uh, you know, until they were relieved. But uh, then we we went into Somalia. You know, Somalia had been brewing for a long time. Mm. Uh, you know, the Battle of Mogadishu in October uh, of 83, that, that was not a, uh, a one-night deal. Right. That had been going on for a couple of years. We had been deploying combat controllers out of Germany to work the uh, airfields uh, throughout Somalia for the humanitarian uh, supply missions. Mm -hmm. they, would, they would land C-130s full of uh, rice and flour and, and whatnot. Uh, they'd offload that stuff, give it to the, uh, the non-government agencies. Uh, and then in many cases, they just watched the warlords steal it. Uh, you know, and they'd have to get on those, uh, you know, they'd have to get out and, and do it again the next couple of days and next week and, and everything else. But they were, they were working in there for two years in civilian clothes. Mm. Uh, pretty high risk missions because uh, those warlords were fighting all the time. Right. They didn't just start. Yeah. Fighting. You know, know, Jeff Struker talked to us about that on EP 73. Right. And Jeff was part of right. That battle. Of yeah, absolutely. Great, great and, ranger and, there. Great. ranger. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah. you talk about an incredible human, right. Uh, and he was a big part of black Hawk down guys go back. If you haven't listened to episode yeah. 73, the way in which Jeff, but he talks about, how all of it builds up and then boom, it's a hornet's nest. Right. And just bam, everything yep. explodes his, his ability. And I, and I believe, and, and he talks about this, I, I believe he had a different level of protection and he talks about walking in and out of that battlefield legit, yep. like, and, and his, uh, and his fellow warriors saying like, I saw you walk in and I, I don't know how you came out. Yeah. Uh, it's an incredible incredible story yeah. um yeah and, and you know they, they say the same thing about tim wilkinson the mm. uh, air force pj that uh when the air force crossed there yeah you know uh as he said you know he ran a little bit slower and the somalis tried to lead him you know <laughs> uh so you know he, he he makes a lot of fun out of it but you know a lot of heroism there and, and you're right there's a god loves paratroopers Amen to that. You know, right. uh, and, and, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. We've all we've all been blessed, uh, mm. both in peacetime training as well as in uh, with the bullets flying. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and, and thank, thankfully we haven't lost more of our special operators, uh, although it's been tragic to to see how many we have over the years. But uh, again, back there, you know, Somalia, uh, they've been doing these hits for for weeks. Yeah, and, and I forget what number of hit it was, but it, it was not the first one, you know. Uh, and again, I, I was unfortunately I was in that position that I was back back at home station as the operations NCO. Uh, so I'd go into the jock when, when they had a, a mission go down, and it was pretty much routine stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, we we listened to all the checks on the uh, uh, satcom, and everything was going. Yep, got it. Yep, got it. Yep, got it. You know, yep, got, got the uh, precious cargo. Yep, recovered took them out, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it was kind of like yawn, uh, high, high stress. Don't get me wrong, but it was, it was routine missions for these guys. They were so good at, uh, that it was just routine. Uh, and then they decided to do a day mission uh, and everybody, e e even back at Fort Bragg, we were like, Hmm, that just doesn't sound right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that General cover Garrison, of darkness is always a great ally for you. Absolutely. And General Garrison was the, uh, uh the commanding general JSOC at the time. He was a smart man. Mm -hmm. absolutely smart dude and, and how he allowed that to go uh and i'm not going to try to uh question or, or, or double think you know the, the leadership at the time but even back at fort bragg we were like really yeah you know? uh it, it must it must be an easy op okay it must must be something that's just you know okay let's go grab this car and, and go home well as we all know it turned into a absolutely uh difficult situation uh, uh Lots of bullets flown, uh, estimates of over 700 uh, uh, bad guys killed. And, you know, we, we had our own uh, disasters. But uh, heroism uh, mm -hmm. that night, uh, the first medals of honor since Vietnam, yeah. Dark and Gordon, uh, Air Force Cross, uh, many silver stars, uh, many that you don't even know about. 
from, from these guys because they, they just didn't get publicized. You know? Yeah, it was a different, it was a different time. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, and I mean, thankful for the creators of Black Hawk Down and sort of telling that story. So people got to see that and yeah. at least see parts of it, but you're right. It's a little different. Um, and, you know, um, a, a lot of Iraq and Afghanistan and specifically Afghanistan was kind of in front of us and we were yeah. able to consume that in a different way. And, and, and the rise of those special forces. And I, I think one thing that's really neat, I wanted to talk to you before we go today, and I've always heard it when I've talked to Eric, I just, I can hear it. I can feel it when I talk to Eric or even my friend, Dan Skidmore, same thing. Like there is a real sense of pride in all the elite warfighters and everybody who puts the uniform on, right? Sense of pride for what you're asked to do. And we always say on this show, we're just so grateful for what you've been asked to do on behalf of our nation, what you continue to do. But the CCT guys... I just really enjoy it. Look, I mean, I grew up in an Air Force house. My dad flew fighter pilot, fighter jets. So, right. It, I, I just, I've, I've loved to lean in on these conversations over the last year or so of this podcast. Yeah. And Eric just talks about just the sense of pride in that you guys are the smallest uh, of those groups, right? You, you got a lot more green berets uh, on the planet. You got a lot more seals. You guys like a fraction compared yep. to that. And I know there's a, there's a pride point in that, right? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it is, you know, many years ago, I used to go talk with the, uh, the selection team down here at Lackland. You mm-hmm. know, I tell them, you know, when, when we were starting this stuff uh, uh, in the, in the early eighties and we were integrating forces, you know, the army and the Navy grudgingly would work together on a mission. Mm. Trust <laughs> <me>. sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and we were, we were always there as the air to ground uh, coordinators, you know, and again, they grudgingly let us into their tribe uh, to, to play with that play on that game. And then we'd go home, you know, uh, and eventually it turned into a, a, a good relationship, you know, over, over a few years. And then uh, what we did is we got assigned to those units on the alert cycle. So we would go over and, you know, alert cycles changed over the years, but let's, let's just call it a, an eight week, uh, uh, cycle. You know, you'd, you'd be on alert with that, with that unit, with that squadron or that team. Okay. And you live with them 24 seven. Okay. You're either up at, uh, up in Virginia with the Navy or you're right there at Fort Bragg with the army. Mm-hmm. You know? And you just, you, you called in and talked to ops once a week, just say, Hey, I'm alive. You know, but the rest of the time you leave, lived, eat, breathe, you know, change underwear, everything else with, with that team, you know, and your job was whenever there's an aircraft, you talk with it, made it work. You know, you did the HLZ survey, you, you know, you coordinated the, uh, uh, the airstrikes, the air support, the AC-130, uh, all of that stuff. And, and, and we became, you know, grudgingly at first, but after a while, uh, because the first week with these units, it was a selection for us. We had to meet their yeah. their uh, their standard. And there's one way to earn trust, right? Yeah, through yeah. action. And and if anybody says we didn't have have selections, we had selections every freaking time that we went with the Army or the Navy. Yeah, because they had to see what we could do. <laughs> That's a great and, way to put it, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, so uh, uh, some of our guys were just beasts. You know, and and whenever they uh, you know would come out. Uh, they, they swam faster than the Navy. They shot better than the Army. Those were suppressed. <laughs> hey, I don't want him back anymore. He's too good. <laughs> not that, not that there's uh, any competition. Oh no, you know, floating around there is there? <laughs> I tell you what, I got to um, last July, uh, and you guys, we told this story and uh, cool videos about it on our YouTube channel. I got to go be part of this Smart Reef deployment uh, with my friends down in South Carolina. Tom Mulliken, SC7. And basically what they do is they're like, we're going to take a bunch of special operators and we're going to train them to scuba dive and to legit save the planet, right? So they've saved humans through wartime efforts. Now we're going to train these guys up to save the planet. It's really cool concept, right? Because they have such a unique skill set. They right. work great as a team, right? And they're like, we look, we could teach them to jump out of airplanes. Some of these guys already have underwater experience. Like, Let's train them up. So you got guys that are like green berets and stuff. We're now scuba certified. And, and part of that project, and it was through Force Blue and SC7, was to plant these smart reefs. I tell you all that to say, 
it was a the 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 chop was bad <laughs> as we were going out to deliver these smart reefs and we're taking all these boats out a couple miles off the coast mm-hmm. so it was about a i don't know 30 minute sort of ride to get out to where we we're going because we were going pretty slow and uh i say this not to call anybody out but there were a bunch of navy guys and there were a few army guys and a couple of the navy guys got sick in the chop and my green beret army buddy made sure they all knew he did not. <laughs> right. He let everybody know. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter whether you're 18 or 48. You That's know, right. It, it's, That's right. It, it's, the, it's the same and it's all good. And, yeah. and it, what, what keeps our standards high. That's exactly right. Before we go, Tim, you've mentioned a lot of names, right? Of people that were critical, right? And your upbringing, guys that you respect, uh, that you learn from. But what we do love to do is lean in here, right? And talk about warriors maybe we haven't heard of or even those who have gone before us. So is there anybody else that you want to just make sure we know, right? Any other names oh, we need uh, to know? Uh, you know, during that during that transition time, you had guys like John Corn and Mike Lampy, uh, uh, Bud Gonzalez. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, oh, man, these guys in Vietnam, you know, they, they flew with the Ravens, okay? You didn't hear about those guys because they were enlisted. Okay, you always hear about the pilots, but these guys were flying, calling in airstrikes from from uh, from fixed wing prop aircraft, you know, and undercover. When I say undercover, you know, civilian clothes and, and whatnot, working out of embassies. Uh, they were doing special ops uh, way back, you know, and then they then they get thrown back out in, into the uh, the uh, post Vietnam military, and they stayed. You know, God God bless them. I mean, that was a tough time. Uh, and then they came in, and those were those were the guys that stood up our uh, our special operations forces because of their experiences in Vietnam. And the same thing with the other other services. But mm-hmm. man, we got a lot of lot of uh, great stories out there. And let me let me dig a little bit. Yeah, please. If if anybody's really interested, this is a big thick book. This yeah, is tell us the title of it so folks watching can see it, but folks all... listening on the podcast, what it's yeah. what's it called? It's U.S. Air Force Special Tactics Combat Control uh, Control Team History. It's available on Amazon. Ain't cheap, but at the same time, it's not. It's not a novel. You don't just go in there and read a paragraph. No, that thing's it, like four inches thick, man. It's no it joke. Is. It, it is. But uh, you know, we got uh, a lot of history here. A lot of great names. Uh, you know, if, if you want to get somebody on that, that's you know relevant, uh, that that worked from Vietnam through. Oh, Mike Lampy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, senior enlisted advisor, U.S. SOCOM for uh, General Downing, uh, you know, and and again, Vietnam, post-Vietnam, one of the early uh, uh, Brand X guys, uh, you know, John Corn, uh, Vietnam, uh, early uh, special operations, uh, became got a, got a commission, uh, became a squadron commander. Uh, you know, these these guys have got. Uh, leadership stories as well. You know, I was a young guy back then. You know, uh, one, one of the best jobs in all the services, folks, E5, E6, trigger puller, get out there. You know, y- your job is to make things happen, okay? Uh, whether it's to break things, fix things, call in airstrikes, best time in the world, okay? When you're too young, you know, you, you don't get to do everything. And mm-hmm. as you get a little bit older, you get too much responsibility to do it all as well. Uh but, uh, you know, again, I was very lucky in those years. I cherish every minute of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, the guys that I had as leaders, you know, the Lampies, the Corns, uh, John Carney, uh, the guy that was in on, on Desert One. Uh, super, super good uh, guys. Uh, a lot of great history there. Uh, good storytellers in a lot of cases. If you can get John Carney, the man can tell a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, oh, geez, Craig Brochy, uh, Jeff Buckmelter, uh, you know, he is still the deputy J3 for U.S. Ocon as a civilian. Man, it must have been doing this for 45 Must have been doing years. something right. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. He, he's got stories. Oh, yeah. You know, so there, there's some names there, you know, not counting the the wonderful men that, uh, that, that take the time to put these foundations together. Eric and his first there uh, mm-hmm. foundation. Uh, Michael Monica's head of our Combat Control Foundation. Uh, they're not competing. I think they're they're parallel organizations that that want to do good things for our forces, uh, and, and they are doing good things for our forces. 
you know, we've, we've had a lot of guys injured over the years and, and sometimes you just can't do enough for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you need organizations like this to kind of help focus and, and find maybe that guy that was, you know, didn't get mm-hmm. uh, noticed by, by one, he gets noticed by another. Uh, and, and so I look at them as not competing, but as uh, parallel and, and uh, supporting foundations and they're out there. There's a lot of good foundations yeah. out there. And, yeah. uh, you know, the Special Operations Warrior Foundation kind of put it all together well before the global war on terror. Uh, they were taking care of folks from Eagle Claw, uh, you know, the guys that were died, uh, the guys that died in their families, mm-hmm. you know, through, through every uh, evolution that, that happened. And they're still out there, a very relevant organization today. So uh, lots of good stuff out there. Yeah. Uh, I encourage people that, that have the, uh, uh, the time and the assets to, to go out there and take a look and, and, and support those where you can. Uh, and again, there's no lack of good ones. You know, yep. it's just a worse, we're a very, very, very small community and we don't necessarily get the, uh, uh, the marquee in the movies. I know Dan Schilling is working very hard with the, uh, uh, story of John Chapman, uh, the alone at dawn. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll see that movie in the next couple of years. I know he's working very hard at it. Uh, that I'm sure will be a, a public affairs boost, but you know, we're never going to add the Charlie Sheens and, you know, John Wayne and uh, things like that, that have been around for a long, long time that, that brought a lot of notoriety. So mm-hmm. uh, small units, uh, very good at what they do. And trust me, there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there that nobody's ever going to hear because it just happens. Sure. It, it happens and we need it to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of it. Tim, this has been an absolute blast, an honor uh, to hear that. And I'm just grateful for you taking a few minutes and just, and, and, and just sharing, even just sharing names, right? That's sort of the point. The reason why I asked that is uh, for us Brian, to just lean in and just hear happy to do it. My, my, my pleasure. And thank you so much for uh, allowing us to, to come on and, you know, speak a little bit about her. Always, history. always. It's been a great time. Uh, a history lesson, uh, from one of the guys who's been there through a lot of it, right. And part of really the air force standing up at special operations, which becomes part of just a bigger thing. It's part of something bigger than ourselves. And again, Tim, Absolutely. we're just grateful for you. Hope you have a great day. And, uh, man, you're welcome here anytime, my friend. Cool. He's Thanks. Tim Brown. I'm Brian Jodas. That's been this episode of pick up the six podcast. <laughs>